0: Good morning, Parkway Church. I am Lee, and I am the new guy, as Jared already uh, introduced here. Uh, Some of you I've met, many of you I'm thankful to have met already. Uh, If we haven't met, you probably uh, know me from the hostage video that was sent out in the church newsletter. Um, They very clearly said it was not a hostage video, uh, but they shined this bright light in my eyes and made me say a bunch of things. So... You can decide about that. Uh, And if we haven't met or you haven't seen the hostage video, uh, maybe you were here back in like, I think it was May when they first uh, announced uh, my hiring. So as as Jared mentioned, it has been kind of a long road here. I first got in touch with Parkway a year ago. Uh, It was either September or October uh, when Jared and I first talked on the phone. And I was in my last year of seminary. And now here I am and we get to open God's word together. I know a lot has changed at Parkway over the course of that year. Uh, none of us knew the the difficult season the church would be in when I got here, but the Lord knew, and I am at the very least encouraged by that uh, and in some ways, I view the job of a preacher of a pastor like uh, those guys you see at the the sidelines of a marathon i 've never run a marathon, and I have no intentions to ever do so, uh, but you like the uh, the water booths, like every mile or so, there's a water booth, someone you're know, handing out water and encouraging you as you, you run your race. And I think the duty of a preacher is very similar. The Lord provides the water through his word. And it's my privilege and duty to hand it out and encourage you and equip you as you run your race. And for this present season, this, this leg of the race for Parkway, The Lord has brought us to Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. And I think here we find a refreshing drink for weary and worried souls. So will you pray with me as we dive into God's word? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Father, I pray as we study your word, as we consider the truths that Christ gives us here in this passage, in this great Sermon on the Mount, you would take our eyes off of the things that are seen, fix our gaze instead and what we cannot see, and yet what is far more important, the things that will last forever, the truths that will stand forever. Give us grace as we do that. Help us to trust and treasure you above all. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, uh, Jared preached on laying up treasures in heaven here through the Sermon on the Mount. in that last verse, if you're looking at your Bibles, in verse 24 uh, I think it shows us uh, the question about money, if I were to just kind of summarize Jared from last week, the question about money is not what do I have, but who do I serve? It cannot be both God and you know stuff, money, mammon. it can only be one of those two, and you'll notice our passage today begins with the word therefore, therefore, so it's linking these two passages together and I think I think what, what Jesus is doing with that is he's showing us there's, there's an intimate connection between this issue of money and how we should relate to it and anxiety and how we should relate to it. It's, it's a different question, but ultimately it has the same answer. So last week, it's not what do I have, but who do I serve? This week, the question is not what's happening around me. The question is, Who is my Father? Who is my Father? Jesus says, verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Now, uh, that's about as clear of a command as we could find in the Bible. Do not be anxious. And I think the fact that Jesus gives us that command right at the beginning here. kind of reveals something about the world in which we live, something you probably are aware of, but maybe haven't taken the time to reflect on, that reality is anxiety-inducing. Like living and breathing is a stressful thing. So before we get to the rest of our passage today, I just want to spend a minute thinking about why we should be anxious. I've got three broad umbrella reasons why anxiety actually makes sense. Uh, don't worry. If that sounds stressful, it'll be, it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, it'll be great. So reason number one, reason number one to be anxious. The world is dangerous. The world is dangerous. Calvin uh, reflects on this reality. He writes, wherever you turn, all things around you not only are hardly to be trusted But almost openly menace and seem to threaten immediate death. Embark upon a ship, you're one step away from death. Mount a horse, if one foot slips, your life is imperiled. Go through the city streets, you're subject to as many dangers as there are tiles on the roofs. There's a weapon in your hand or a friend's, harm awaits. All the fierce animals you see are armed for your destruction. But if you try to shut yourself up in a walled garden, seemingly delightful... There's a serpent sometimes. A, there, a serpent sometimes lies hidden. Your house, continually in danger of fire, threatens in daytime to impoverish you; at night, even to collapse upon you. You probably didn't think about that, but now you are. Your field, since it is exposed to hail, frost, drought, and other calamities, threatens you with barrenness and hence famine. I pass over poisonings, ambushes, robberies, open violence, which in part besieges us at home, in part dog us abroad. Amid these tribulations. Must not man be most miserable? Since but half alive in life, he weakly draws his anxious and languid breath as if he had a sword perpetually hanging over his neck. I know what you guys are thinking. I hate the new guy. I hate the new guy. <laughs> and did not come to church today to be depressed, Thanks for that. But it is true. Hate to break it to you. It is true. This is our theological reality. This is very clearly the world the Bible reveals to us. Uh, And our experience corroborates that reality. So uh, my wife and I used to live in Lubbock, Texas, out uh, about six hours west of here. And I remember our very first day in Lubbock. So I'm the Chicago boy, you know, moving down south. Here I am. Uh, that was my first pilgrim to, come, pilgrimage to Texas. Um, you're here for my second. Um, but yeah, we're we're moving our coffee table out in the backyard because my wife wanted to paint it, as as wives do when you have a new house. And uh, I looked down at the concrete, about six inches from my bare foot, and there was a black widow spider. And I do know, you Texans are like, oh, whatever, it's black widow, you know, brown recluse, whatever. There's, those are everywhere. Where I'm from, we think that things like black widow spiders only exist in, like, the Amazon rainforest, okay? I was not expecting it when I got to West Texas. Uh, And after a thorough panic attack and, sadly, an unsuccessful attempt to kill it, which is the scariest thing when you try to kill it and you don't, anyway, um, I started having second thoughts about living there. I was like, I I didn't realize we moved to the jungle. Uh, I thought we were living in just, you know, normal suburban America, My reality was a lie. The world is dangerous and there's much to be anxious about. Okay, the fun's just getting started. That's reason number one. Reason number two, to be anxious. We are weak. The reason number one, the world is dangerous. Reason number two, we are weak. This one is even more fun, it has two parts. So we are fallen. And we are finite. So uh, as far as fallenness, there are dangers out there. We've established that. But actually, the biblical teaching is that the worst danger to ourselves actually lies within ourselves. There is a part of us, our sin, that is actively self-destructive. We are fallen. We destroy relationships out of selfishness. We speak Foolish words that even we might regret two seconds later, but we still said it. We're ruled by our passions. Our own sin is bad for us, and that is stressful. And on top of that, we are also finite. So we're we're limited in our ability to control the world around us. Like the 30 things that Calvin listed uh, that could kill you, uh, that really fun list we just read... Only some of them are like even preventable. I mean, again, you could, you know, you, he says you can go on the garden, but there might be a snake in there, uh, right? So we, we just don't know the future. Uh, my little brother uh, has a friend, I think it's actually the father of one of his friends, who is a bit of a, a prepper, okay? You know what this word means? A prepper, someone who uh, is, you know, getting ready for some like post-apocalyptic reality they think is about to happen uh, like probably most Texans. Um, and on the shelf in this guy's garage, again, my little brother told me this story, so it's kind of through the grapevine, but uh, he said he had about 200 bottles of whiskey. Uh, and, and my little brother asked him, like, what's with, you know, what's with the, the liquor here? Uh, and the guy goes, it's not for drinking, it's for trade. Uh, so he has no idea what kind of post-apocalyptic world he's preparing for, but he's certain he knows how the economy works, booze. And I mean, maybe he's right. Um, but the, the truth is simply, right, what, whatever's coming, we don't know the future. We don't know what tomorrow will hold. We can prepare as much as we want. We do not know what is coming, and that is cause for anxiety. All right, third and, and final big picture umbrella reason to be anxious. world is dangerous. We are weak. And third, we have needs. It's very, very simple. We have needs. It is not the case that we like food and clothing and shelter. We need those things to survive. We die without them. So you put all this together, and it's a, it's a really great recipe for anxiety. Uh, we start with a depraved world. We add a bunch of sinners who are going to mess everything up, uh, and then you give them a bunch of needs that they, they require to survive, uh, and you have a very anxiety-inducing reality. Uh, And with all of that, I probably haven't even touched on the things you are anxious about sitting in your seat right now. It barely scratches the surface. We haven't talked about jobs, marriages, kids, sickness, loss. I mean, everything, it feels like everything we could do from our work to our home lives and everything in between has points that can be just so, so stressful. Uh, My wife and I uh, have been looking for a home in the area. We we found one, praise the Lord. We're under contract, it's exciting. But I was just thinking like, man, the real estate process is, could we make it more stressful? Like you get 15 minutes to walk into this house to make a decision about whether you want to spend more money on this than you've ever spent on anything in your entire life uh, and make it basically the centerpiece of your whole life. And you just, you looked at it for like 15 minutes. What do you think, right? Everything about our world induces anxiety. And I think everyone is aware of that fact. Even if they they might lack the theological language to articulate it, it's something that we all know. And so, we have all kinds of strategies to alleviate that problem. We might try to just keep on the sunny side of life, you know, a blind optimism, deny those realities. We might try to smooth it away with an indulgence six hours of Netflix or whatever, or or a tub of Bluebell. We might try to insulate ourselves from the world, like hedge around us so that nothing could ever harm us. Or we might try to do the opposite and just try to fix everything, make the world the utopia that we want it to be. And then, of course, there's the option of medication. Just pop a pill and feel better about things. Now, I do need to say, not all those options are bad. In fact, many of them are good and necessary at times. It's not like we should not try to improve the world. Uh, And medication has its uses. Sometimes uh, it's exactly what you need. If there's a chemical imbalance in your brain that, that needs to be addressed and can be addressed by medication, sometimes that's what you need. Sometimes a tub of Bluebell is all right. I know the Texans are rejoicing at that one. None of those things are bad. Some may be necessary, but none are sufficient. They all fail to realize what Jesus says here, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? See, the problem with those solutions is not that they're wrong. It's that they're reductionistic the ultimate answer to our anxiety, that the point Jesus is, is driving us toward throughout this passage gets to the very heart of what you were made for. And there's a lot more than a material reality that we can sense and feel. See, anxiety springs from a true view of reality. I think that's what we've established so far. It springs from a true view of reality. There are good reasons to be stressed out, but it does not spring from a full view of reality. There are far better reasons to be comforted. Uh, maybe you've heard you know, someone say, you know, they're like fixing a car or something like I, I know enough about that to get myself in trouble. Right? And that's like not the person you want working on your car. Uh, because they, you can if you have a true knowledge and not a full knowledge, it causes problems. Anxiety is like that. It tells a partial truth, and we need the full truth. It looks through the wrong end of the telescope and we need to turn it around and see the glories that we've been missing. And so to do that, Jesus gives us two illustrations, verses 26 through 30. Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? See, the world may seem to be anxiety-inducing, and it is, but also Jesus points us to reasons to be encouraged. And the first thing he does is tell us to lift our eyes up to the birds of the heavens. Jesus says, look at these birds. They're horrible farmers. They don't know what they're doing. They can't put things into barns. They can't reap. Their, their agricultural skills are zero. And yet, they're fed. If, if he were saying this today, he might say, you know, birds don't put bread on the table. They, they don't have a Costco where they can buy, you know, 10-year supply of kids' chicken nuggets. Uh, they, they don't do anything to put food on the table for tomorrow. And somehow, miraculously, they don't go hungry because God feeds them. I think verse 27, it's just, I love Jesus just kind of throws it in there uh, because it's a little bit out of place, but it's just his gentle, humble, savior way of of just saying, man, anxiety is so stupid. He says, you don't live any longer by being anxious, so just stop, I love that. And then verses 28 and 29, he he moves our gaze from the, the birds of the heavens down to the lilies of the field. And he says, like the birds, but they don't do anything. They, they don't toil. They don't spin to, to clothe themselves. They don't, you know, sew or knit or crochet. I don't know what these words mean, but you know what I'm talking about. The things you do to make clothes, they don't do that, and they do just fine. In fact, they do a whole lot better than fine. Uh, he says they're, they're, they're better, they're more glorious than Solomon, who is universally known as the Old Testament pinnacle of swag. If you don't know much about the Old Testament, that's Solomon, Old Testament pinnacle of swag. And Jesus says, verse 30, if God shows such care for something so small, so insignificant, like the flowers of the field that just are going to get thrown into an oven because their only use at this point is just fuel for a fire to keep you warm, if he shows such care for that which lasts a day, will he not much more clothe you? And as we look at these two illustrations, there's several things I want to, us to just make note of. And the first is that these are just bare bones, basic needs Jesus is talking about. Uh, again, we haven't probably even thought about being anxious about survival today. Like, when you woke up today, you were probably not like, like the, again, that Calvin quote, like, I really hope no tiles fall off a roof and kill me today. Like, we're, we're not having these thoughts about survival most of the time when we're anxious. But that's actually what Jesus is focusing on. And I think, first, in some ways, that should rebuke us, because often we are going to elevate our desires, our wants, to the level of needs. We take God's His, His essential provisions for granted, and we focus our worries on less essential things. Like, like, we think it's God's job to keep us alive, to give us the basic things that we need, but we really got to, like, beg Him if we want anything more. But at the same time, in one, in one sense, this, this uh, focus on the basics kind of rebukes us. for the, We're focusing on lesser things. But at the same time, I think there's a, a sense that if the Lord can handle these things, these things that matter most, then we can certainly trust him with the rest. Just look, look at the text. It's, the language is so all-encompassing, right? So he says, birds of heaven and flowers of the earth, all creation, heaven and earth, it's under God's care. He speaks of life in in body. Actually, the word for life here uh, in Greek is the word psuche, which means soul. So you hear that in the word psyche, psychology, right? So that's where that comes from, psuche. So it's the word soul. So he's not, I mean, life's a good translation. Uh, But when it's next to body, we see he's talking about body and soul. Both fall under God's providential care. Not only is his providence universal, But it's better than just the basics. He even says here, yeah, the birds are fed. That's nifty. But flowers are clothed in unimaginable glory. God does not just give the essentials. He goes up and over the top so we can trust him with our needs and beyond. And in both of these examples, Jesus tells us, We are much more, more than birds, more than flowers, which I think gets us to his really what I think Jesus' main point is here. Look again, verse 26. He says, the birds, they don't plan their meals ahead. They're horrible farmers. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Jesus does not say their heavenly Father feeds them. He says yours does. Anxiety dies when you know who your God is and who you are to him. That's what Jesus is showing us here, brothers and sisters. He's showing us a God who is in complete providential control of everything and who's also your father. Remember that scary Calvin quote we read a minute ago? Well, uh, the the one that's going to give you nightmares. Well, on the next page, this is what Calvin wrote. It's from his institutes. He says, yet when that light of divine providence has once shone upon a godly man, he is then relieved and set free. Not only from the extreme anxiety and fear that were pressing him before, but from every care. For as he justly dreads fortune, so he fearlessly dares commit himself to God. His solace, I say, is to know that his heavenly Father so holds all things in his power, so rules by his authority and will, so governs by his wisdom, that nothing can befall except he determine it. To birds and flowers, Christian, God is creator. To you, he is father. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. J.I. Packer, a famous theologian, calls adoption the crowning blessing of the Christian faith. It's true, we are, we are called, chosen, justified, and one day we'll be glorified, but we are also given a relationship. We are welcomed into the family of God himself. So that this, this mighty, sovereign king of the cosmos is the one that we get to call father. And it is that relationship, Christian, that more than anything else, grants you an unimaginable value in the eyes of God. Uh, I was reading last week, or maybe it's two weeks ago now, about how Aaron Judge hit his 60th home run of the year. Carl, we're talking baseball. Uh, he's not a sports guy. Um, anyway, which put him one shy of the, uh, the American League record. And I think the, re- the reason this is a big deal, because there's like seven guys who have hit more home runs, but like all seven of them, we're definitely using steroids back in the day, so this now we're like, okay, this is kind of starting over. Um, anyway, he hit his 60th home run, one shy of the record, uh, and one of the big stories that came out was that the fan who, who caught the home run ball gave it back to Aaron Judge. He wanted him to have it, and he said something like, you know, it's worth more to him than it is to me. And what's funny is that, you know, it was just another baseball worth a couple bucks until Judge homered it, but after he homered it, instantaneously, in that act, it it received a value to any fan, any sports collector, you know, etc., but especially to judge, especially to him, because he did that. The ball holds a special value to him. In the same way, Christian, when God paid for your sins in Christ, and you were united to him through faith. You went from being his creation to his child. You already had, don't get me wrong, you already had an inestimable, and yeah, that's a tough word to say, inestimable, there it is, an inestimable, well, we're not going to say that again. You had a big value. You had a big value in the eyes of God. You were the pinnacle of his creation. You were made in his image, but in Christ you receive adoption as a son or a daughter and cry, "Abba, Father." Uh, one thing you'll learn about me at church is that I love my dog. Uh, we have a dog. His name is Kodiak. He's an Alaskan Malamute, uh, and uh, he's an idiot. And I love him. You will. You will. I mean, he's. Almost, I won't tell you all the stories. He's almost drowned himself on multiple occasions. He can't swim. Anyway, we got him like seven or eight years ago when we were living out in Lubbock because most dogs from Alaska can be found in West Texas. And in those, those early years, Kodiak's life was amazing, okay? He got walks twice a day, every day. He got treats every single day of his life. He got a bed that is literally more comfortable than the bed I sleep on. And it's like a, it's one of those like tempur it's like six inches thick, Uh, And he's just living the life. I mean, even when he'd get skunked or something like that, you know, like, you know, because the little black rodent with a white stripe on its back looks fun to chase every time. Um, Even when that happens, you know, dad's giving him a bath and telling him it's going to be okay, you know, all all this good stuff. But if you could talk, uh, Kodiak would tell you about four years ago uh, the benefits he was enjoying took a major dip. Uh, There was a baby that was born... And some of the perks kind of evaporated, not so frequent with the walking, uh, you know, fewer treats, fewer trips to the dog park, and maybe I was a little less patient during uh, a post-skunk bath. And the reason for that change was not that my, my love for Kodiak went down at all. The reason was a, a new part of my heart had opened up because my son was born. I just wanted to give him the world. It's good to be my dog. It's it's a good life. It's a lot better to be my son. Likewise, brothers and sisters, it is good to be God's creation, the pinnacle of his creation, but it is far better to be his child. The remedy to anxiety is knowing who your God is and who you are to him. And we need, we need both halves of that equation, right? So if all you knew was who God is, his power, his majesty, his justice, his, his wisdom, it would do nothing to alleviate your anxiety if you didn't know the nature of your relationship to him. It's just dead orthodoxy. That's this God up in the sky who's powerful and great, but like, what does he have to do with me? And if you only knew his fatherly care without the truths of his power, his sovereignty, It's just comfortless sentimentalism. But if you really know the God of the Bible, and you really know he's your father, that will banish any anxiety that could ever assail you. So when you're lying in bed, and you're unable to fall asleep because you're afraid of tomorrow, tell yourself, God is sovereign, and he's my father. When you feel paralyzed by stress and worry, uncertain of the future, a decision you have to make, a change that is coming, tell yourself, God is sovereign and he is my father. And when your world seems to be crumbling, Christian, remember God is sovereign. He is your father. And just in case we need any more convincing, Jesus here points out the emptiness of the alternative. Look at verses 31 and 32. Therefore, in light of this amazing reality of God's sovereignty and the fact that he's your father, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. See, there's there's two options, he's saying, that that you can have the freedom and the confidence that comes when you know you're an adopted child of the king of the cosmos, or you can live in this endless worry and anxiety. You see that with all these questions, right? Verse 31, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? It's just this fear, this uncertainty, this this horrible reality of what's coming? Will I be okay? I just don't know. These constant questions. And Jesus Jesus says, it's just paganism. That's what the Gentiles seek after. Their end goal is a a full belly, and that won't satisfy because it'll be empty again. You'll need to fill it. And it's just this endless cycle of anxiety and fear. But if God is your Father, you don't have to seek those things. Your Father knows what you need, He's got you covered. So what do we seek instead? It's not enough to merely say, okay, I'm not going to do that. We need to seek something instead. And Jesus tells us, verse 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We seek the kingdom and righteousness of God. One of the most famous parts of the most famous sermon and definitely the most famous book ever written, Seek First the Kingdom of God and His Righteousness. Very famous. But what does it mean? We need to figure out. It's, just, it's one of those phrases almost we use it so much that we're like, what am, what am I actually saying? What does it mean to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Well, the, the short answer is that it means uh, pretty much the same thing uh, that uh, Jared touched on last week on laying up treasures in heaven. It's this kind of all-encompassing, shorthand way of, of capturing the, the whole of the Christian calling, everything we are called to believe, to do, and to be as adopted children of God. So that the first word, the first kind of phrase there, kingdom of God, it's a, a common expression in the Gospels. Uh, we're, we're prone to kind of thinking about kingdom as a place, Uh, but if you've been paying attention throughout Matthew, I think you've been taught well, you've heard like the focus here is not so much on a place, but on a person. It's on the king who reigns there, wherever it may be. The kingdom of God is wherever God reigns, wherever the kingship of God, his rule is manifest, loved, and obeyed. That's why his righteousness is is equally a part of this. I don't think those are two things. I think it's one thing. So the righteousness of God is how you become a member of the kingdom. right? That's Romans 3. Christ's righteousness imputed to you you, through faith when you believe in the gospel. But it's also, the righteousness of God is also how you live as a member of the kingdom. Loving and obeying the rule of the king. Uh, Today... That reality, it's it's manifest uh, primarily in the hearts of God's people. And one day, it will span the entire cosmos. So to seek that kingdom, it really has two sides to it. It is a calling both to a present obedience, delighting in the ways of our God, living them out in the world, and it's a calling to hope in the kingdom that is coming. And I think both of those aspects help us understand why seeking the kingdom will banish anxiety from your heart. So hoping in the future kingdom, it reminds us what is ultimate, and living for the kingdom today reminds us what we were made for. Let's think about each of those things. So first, hoping in the future kingdom shows us where everything is going. It shows us the end of the story where everything is headed, what will ultimately, finally stand. Now, I've shared, those of you who I've, I've talked with, it, it's inevitably come out that I'm a major Tolkien nerd. Love me some Tolkien. Uh, and one of my favorite parts in the Lord of the Rings books, uh, it comes at the end, book six, uh, so the second part of the third novel. It's complicated, I know. But anyway, in The Return of the King, if you're, if you're like a low-level nerd, it's towards the end, Okay. When Sam and Frodo are, are despairing at the darkness and the impossibility of the, this task that they're, they're facing, they're saying, how, how could we ever do this? So they're just, they feel overwhelmed and unable to complete the task. And Tolkien writes this. There, peeping among the cloud rack, above a dark tower high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For, like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. For us, brothers and sisters, The coming kingdom of God, which will one day come in full, is that star, that thing we look to that it can never be touched, can never be taken away, can never be denigrated or downgraded in any way. It is coming. When we fix our eyes on it, hope will fill our hearts and anxiety will disappear. Second, seeking the kingdom through obedience will also banish your anxiety. So it's not only this hope in the future, it's not just some, if you think about it in negative terms, like a a pie in the sky when I die kind of hope, but now seeking the kingdom will also help banish your anxiety. Remember back in verse 25, Jesus says, life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. This is that more that Jesus is talking about the kingdom and righteousness of god is what your life and your body were made for it's it's in, i think of it i think it's helpful to think of it like living along the grain of the universe god has made this world and there's a grain to it like grain in a wood and when you're going against the grain things are going to go poorly for you but when you live along the grain you actually find your purpose and what you were made the way you were made to live that's what living Along the grain of the kingdom and righteousness of God will do. I remember uh, a while back, uh, I, was, I was facing a tough decision. I was very anxious. I was uncertain. I didn't know what to do. And so I called my pastor for advice. It's one of those phone calls where you're hoping he's going to say, do this one, like just give you the answer. And that was not what he did at all. I walked him through the decision that I was, I was wrestling with, and rather than him saying, again, what I had hoped he would say, Lee, this is clearly the right choice. Just make the decision for me. Rather than that, he said something like, Lee, you were called to love your wife and your kids. You were called to be faithful to God and his word. You were called to be humble and to make much of Jesus. Whatever you do here... Make sure you do those things. And when he said that, when, when he, he challenged me with this higher calling, this ultimate purpose kind of thought, when he challenged me with that, the thing that I was stressing out about, the decision I had to make, seemed like a lot less of a big deal. Because I knew, I knew what mattered the most when he told me that. I knew what I had to do. And so this lesser thing was less of a big deal. I think that's why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness here. When he, when he says first, it's important we understand he's not talking about like sequence, like do this and then you can do this and then this, like some uh, spiritual order of operations in math class, you know, like uh, please, ex- please excuse my dear Aunt Sally, right? If you didn't know what I'm talking about, Go repent to your middle school math teacher for your forgetfulness. That's the order of operations. Anyway, you can look that up later. When Jesus says, seek first the kingdom, he's not talking about sequence. He's talking about like rank or importance or or weight. First means this is your highest calling, the most important thing, the weightiest factor in anything else you might do. And Jesus says, when you seek that kingdom, when you prioritize God and his word and his ways in your life, all these other things will be added to you. Prioritize what matters and everything else falls into place. Like when I I button my shirt in the morning, sometimes I'm dumb and I'll try to start with like a middle button and then it's wrong, of course, and then whatever I do for the rest of the time, it's going to be messed up. Dudes, you know what I'm talking about. But if I start with the top button and I put it in the top hole, I get first thing first, everything else falls into place. That's what Jesus is saying here. There are, there are 10,000 things you might seek in this world, but when you seek the kingdom and righteousness of God first, everything else will fall into place. Because again, you've, you've got a father who's worthy of your trust, who knows what you need even better than you do. Verse 34, Jesus finishes this passage. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. As sons and as daughters of God, living in this this freedom we enjoy, this freedom knowing who's in control and who our Father is, we can let tomorrow worry about tomorrow. Our Father is already there. He's already got it in his hands. We don't, have to, we don't have to stack the days on top of one another. We can face today in the troubles it holds. And don't, be, don't get me wrong, there will be troubles. Jesus is clear. I think that King James has sufficient for the day is its own evil. That's, that's a fair translation. You will face evil in a day. This is no promise that things will always go easy and, and you'll be, have absolutely everything you could ever want if you just seek the kingdom of God and he'll give you, you know, whatever. He says, no, you, you will face evil. You will face trouble, but you can face that trouble not worrying about the next day's trouble or the next day's trouble. You face that trouble today, knowing your father is with you, that he has that for you today and that you can trust him. So, trust your Father and his sovereign rule and seek his kingdom today. Let's pray. God, we thank you that Christ is a merciful Savior who, even in his his rebuke of our lack of trust, is gentle just says, oh, you of little faith, don't you know who your father is? Oh, God, we are grateful. We are grateful to know that you are on the throne, that we need not worry about tomorrow or the day after or the day after, that we can face today knowing the one who values us more than anything, the one who has made us his child, who has redeemed us with the blood of his Son, who calls us his own. We praise you for that good news. In Jesus' name, amen.